0: Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible study teaching podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc online.org. Now, here's Pastor Sean. So, how many of you have ever been left behind somewhere or forgotten about? Let me tell you a story about my son, Aiden. When he was about two years old, we were living in Colorado Springs and we went to the mall. I don't know if you guys remember, there was a department store called Mervyn's. It was kind of back in the day. And um, so Don and I were like looking around and um, she thought Aiden was with me and I thought Aiden was with her. And so we panicked because neither one of us knew where Aiden was. And so we were like, where did Aiden go? And so Aiden was very talkative as a little kid, and so um, we're like panicking, and this lady comes up and says, I think your son's over trying out sunglasses. And so we go over there, and Aiden's like trying out all these sunglasses and talking to the lady at the thing and and all this kind of stuff, and we're like, Aiden, where'd you go? And he's like, I don't know where I went. I just went to go look at these sunglasses. Well, you, you freaked us out because we thought you had been lost. Um, And then there's another story, I think I've told you this before, Um, so my dad was a pastor and so oftentimes we were the last ones to leave church, just like kind of how it is now and so uh, my little brother fell asleep during church because, you know, the pastor had been going on pretty long and so my dad thought he was with my mom and my mom thought he was with my dad and so we get home to eat lunch after church and my dad's like, where's Scott? My mom's like, where's Scott? You don't have him? You don't have him? No. Like, where is he? Well, my dad drove back to the church, and he was asleep on the pew, and they had turned all the lights off, and he was just like sound asleep, but we left him behind. So there are times when you are left behind. Nobody likes to be left behind. Nobody likes to be forgotten or overlooked. Um, Maybe you were the last one picked on a team and um, whatever. So we don't like to be left behind or forgotten about. So let me ask you guys a question, it's it's kind of an easy question tonight, and that is this, what is a crucible besides a book by, who wrote it, who was the guy that wrote it, Nathaniel, not Nathaniel Hawthorne, it's a famous American novel, The Crucible, come on Sean, you were an English minor in college, I don't remember who wrote The Crucible, what, it's not the novel, what is a crucible, does anybody know that, it's a container That's like a pottery bowl. It's it's made out of ceramics. It's like clay. And what a crucible can do is it can withstand the highest temperatures, and it can melt or alter the chemical composition of metal and other substances. So it's actually something that can withstand high temperatures, literally a crucible. But what's the metaphor like he went through the crucible, the crucible of suffering? It basically means you've been tested through fire. You've gone through an extreme ordeal. Very much like what First Peter 1, 6-7 says. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When you think about being tested through fire, what happens when metals go through the process of smelting? You, you, you raise the temperature so high that the dross rises to the top and gets rid of all the impurities so that you have that pure gold and silver. But you've got to go through that testing by fire to get those impurities out. And so as we continue to study the life of Joseph, I can think of no other man in Genesis that went through a crucible of suffering, where God was shaping him and preparing him. Now, let's just backtrack, because we've been two weeks on this. Joseph has been betrayed two times. The first time he was betrayed by his brothers, right? He was left for dead, in the pit, sold into slavery, and just so happened to be sold into Potiphar's house. And last week, we looked at how he was betrayed the second time by Potiphar's wife. Remember, she came on to Joseph and wanted to have sex with him, and he fled, and she blamed him and said that he raped me. And so Potiphar could have killed Joseph on the spot, but instead he sent him to be in Pharaoh's prison. Now, some of you may not have been here last week, but in chapter 39, the key phrase that was repeated four times was, the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. God's sovereign hand was with him all the time. So let's just pick up at the end of, of chapter 39, because it's kind of the setup for verse 40, or for chapter 40. So let's look at verse 21. It wasn't because Joseph was all that. It wasn't because he was a man of ingenuity. God was sovereignly directing his steps. So let's find out what happens to Joseph as he's in prison. Now, we're going to tackle two chapters tonight. And the reason I'm doing that is because we're not going to get done because we only have, I think, three more weeks of Wednesday night. So we're going to try to get everything in tonight, and hopefully we'll be able to do that. So let's just read verses 1 through 8. Chapter 40, we're going to take this in bite-sized chunks here. So chapter 41 through 8. Some time after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with the two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, And he attended them, and they continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, we have had dreams and there's no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. Now, the text there in verse one says sometime after this. We can do the math. How old was Joseph when the story began? He was 17 years old. And he was sold into slavery, and then at the beginning of chapter 41, He's 28 years old. So it's probably 10 or 11 years or so. So um, there, there, it's been a long time that he's been there. So let's talk about the cupbearer and let's talk about the baker. Nehemiah was a cupbearer too. So what was the cupbearer? A person who bore the cups, right? <laughs> now the cupbearer, held a critical position of trust in the government. Pharaohs feared being poisoned or assassinated, so they trusted the cupbearers with their lives. What would the cupbearer do? They would taste the wine or the drink before it was given to the Pharaoh to make sure it wasn't poisoned. So you had to trust your cupbearer because that was kind of the person that was protecting your life as a Pharaoh. So it had to be somebody that was very, very trustworthy to make sure nobody would come and assassinate, make sure nobody would poison him. He was probably one of the closest confidants to the Pharaoh. Now, let's talk about the baker. The bakers were also in a position of trust because the baker was like the top chef. Um, He would prepare all of the king's meals, and he too would be very close to the Pharaoh And he could possibly conspire against him either by poisoning the food or allowing the king's enemies to get close. So you're messing with the food. That's one way you can get the Pharaoh either assassinated, poisoned. So you had to have men that you trusted close to you that were preparing your food. The cupbearer and the baker. And so both of these men had been charged with wrongdoing and they are thrown into the prison and they're thrown into the prison next to where Joseph was in charge. And so they're troubled. As a matter of fact, in verse 6, where it says, when Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw they were troubled. That, that, that um, Hebrew word really means like raging like the sea. Do you guys have handouts, by the way? We do have handouts if you guys want. They're, they're back there. If you guys want to take notes. Um, so it's like the raging of the sea. They're, they're in ultimate turmoil. So what's the big deal about having a dream? Now, some of you may wake up and have had a dream or had a nightmare. Um, so what's the big deal about having a dream and a dream interpreter? Well, this is ancient Egypt. Okay? In ancient Egypt, dreams were a big deal. As a matter of fact, there were professional magicians that were hired to interpret dreams. You could get your living off doing that. And so these two men were in prison, and they realized, I can't go and buy a dream, you know, a, a professional dream interpreter. I mean, this is an omen. This is scary. I've, I've got these dreams. What do they mean? What's going to happen? And so Joseph has walked with the Lord for 10 years. As a 17-year-old boy, he's probably 27 or 28 and what does he say in verse 8? Do not interpretations belong to God. Basically what Joseph's saying is, I'm not a professional dream interpreter. You don't have to hire me. But I know that God can sovereignly answer these questions. God can provide and interpretation, And really, this is an expression of faith by Joseph. He trusts in the sovereignty of God, the providence of God. He is saying, listen, I'm going to trust God all the way through this process. So Joseph says, tell me your dreams. So two different men, two different dreams. So let's read verses 9 through 15. Let's talk about the um, cupbearer's dream. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. And as soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup into Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, This is the interpretation. Three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head... And restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me in the pit. Okay, three days... The cupbearer will be vindicated. In other words, Joseph is saying, you're innocent, and it's going to be proven. In verse 13, he says, Pharaoh will lift up your head. That literally means you're going to be lifted up, you're going to be released from prison, but it can also mean something else, as we'll see in just a moment. So there is a little bit of play on words. So you're going to be vindicated, cupbearer, you are going to be released from prison, the big thing that Joseph says there, what does he say there in verse 14? Only remember me. Remember me. He knows that God is sovereign, but he also knows that it doesn't hurt to get a word into this cupbearer to say, listen, put a good word into me to Pharaoh. Remember me. I helped you out here. I helped you interpret this dream. And notice that he pleads his innocence. He says, listen, I've done nothing wrong. I was stolen. I was stolen out of the land of the, of the Hebrews. I've done nothing wrong. I'm suffering here innocently, just like you have been, cupbearer. You can relate to me. You're here as an innocent man. I'm here as an innocent man. You're getting out because I helped you interpret the dream. Just remember me. Show me kindness. And that word kindness, show me kindness, that is the word we keep seeing over and over again. Has said, show me kindness. Has said. In other words, it's not God's love towards us, but it's the strongest way of asking the cupbearer, please be gracious to me, please be committed to me, please remember me. Now, we have to remember, there's two men, two dreams. Who is hearing this happen? The baker. And what's the baker thinking? Well, Joseph gave a very good interpretation to the cupbearer, and he's going to get let go in three days and his head's going to be lifted up. So let's see how the baker responds to Joseph. So let's keep reading verses 16 through 19. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable he said to Joseph I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked food for the Pharaoh but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree. (laughs) And the birds will eat the flesh from you. So who's the guilty one? The baker's guilty. And he's rightfully in prison. Because he thinks it's a favorable answer that he gets from Joseph to the cupbearer, maybe he thinks it's the same thing for him. Now, the imagery is kind of weird, isn't it? So he's this basket he's balancing on his head with these cakes and stuff in there, and these birds are coming and eating out of it. And so um, we know three baskets, three days. But notice what he says. He uses the same exact language that he, that he gave to the cupbearer. Pharaoh will lift up your head. He's thinking, so far, so good. I'm going to get out of here. But then lift up can be released Or in Hebrew, lift up your head can also mean I'm going to lift up your head and hang you on a tree and the vultures will eat your dead carcass. You're going to be decapitated and impaled on a tree. This will be a public humiliation of you being a dead body as an example to anyone who conspires against the king. So, two dreams, two interpretations. One guy is guilty one guy is innocent. Joseph says, please remember me. Now, here's the big issue. Will these interpretations come true? Or is Joseph just blowing smoke? These guys are like, well, okay, maybe, maybe it's true, maybe it's not. Is the sovereign God the one who gives the interpretation of the dreams? Because remember, what did Joseph say? Doesn't God give the interpretation? Don't these come from God? If these come from God, then they're going to come true. So, let's continue reading. Verses 20 through 23. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted them to him. Yet... The chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Now, the Pharaoh's birthday, that's not his literal birthday, like the day he was born. It's really the day he became Pharaoh. And it's very important the day he became Pharaoh, because according to Egyptian religion, that means that's the day he became a god. But it's also the day that he gives amnesty to prisoners, lets prisoners go free. So, think about the relief that the cupbearer hears from Pharaoh himself. Now, he heard the interpretation of the dream from Joseph. You're going to be be released. But what does Pharaoh say? You have been released. I'm restoring you to being cupbearer. Come back. Come back into my court. I trust you. You were wrongly accused. You are innocent. But then those stinging words that Moses writes here at the end. Yet, the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph but what? Forgot him. Now, you can think about it this way. This is the third time he's been betrayed or let down or done wrong. Number one, by his brothers. Number two, by Potiphar's wife. Strike three, you're out, Joseph, <laughs> by the cupbearer. So three times he has been forgotten. Forgotten. So let's ask the question, what's this whole chapter teaching us? There's not a, the theological truth doesn't just emerge from the text. We've got to bring the implication into it. So here's what, here's what we think this, this passage is teaching us. Loneliness, disappointment, and delays are used by God to mold us into more effective followers of Jesus. Do you think Joseph was disappointed? God delayed. He's lonely in a prison. There are times when we go through suffering when we think, I've been been left alone. I'm suffering. I've I've got a bitter disappointment. Things didn't work out the way I wanted to. Have you ever thought that's precisely where God wants you to be? (laughs) Sue's like, no. God may want you to go through that, As a way to strengthen your faith, to test you, to shape you, to chip away, to mold you, to make you more effective, more mature, and more dependent upon Jesus. What does James tell us in James 1, 2 through 4? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And, And James doesn't describe what those trials are. He just says all of a sudden go through different kinds of trials, various kinds. For you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now think about this for a moment. God could have written that verse on a scroll hundreds of years earlier and just plopped it down in Joseph's lap and said, Hey, count it all joy, Joseph, when you go through trials. But what does God do? God takes him 13 years through this crucible, of betrayal, loneliness, disappointment, frustration. And why is God doing that? Well, the Bible says it's to mature us. It's to strengthen us. Joseph may not know at the moment why God is delaying, but let's just ask the question, will Joseph need maturity and strength and spiritual stamina for what comes next in his life? Now, he doesn't know what comes next in his life. We know because we've read ahead. He becomes the prime minister, as we'll see in the next chapter. He becomes the prime minister, the second in charge of Egypt. And what's he going to face as the second highest person in the, in the court of, of Egypt? Do you think he's going to face more Potiphar's wives coming after him? If you're in positions of power, I'm sure there's going to be more women coming after him. Are there going to be more enemies like the baker that may come against him like they came against Pharaoh? He's going to be in the thick of Egypt's political elite. He's going to be at the top of the food chain. And at at the top of the food chain, if you will, there are a whole lot more temptations and pressures and things that he's going to have to deal with that at the time he has no idea what God is doing to prepare him. Now, have you ever gone through something like that? You don't know why God took you through a trial. And it was a long trial, and you get to the other end of it, and you're like, okay, now I get it. If God would have placed me here, then there's no way I would have been prepared. I couldn't have handled it. But because he took me through that process, I'm ready to handle what's come my way because he's matured me. So let's think about Joseph's quote-unquote life verse at this point. Joseph had a life verse. What is it? 1 Peter 4, 12 through 16. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial. When it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or as an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Twice, Joseph has suffered for doing the right thing. He did the right thing by fleeing from Potiphar's wife. He did the right thing by interpreting the dream. And both times, what happened? The door was shut in his face, he was forgotten, and it didn't work out. Now, I'm going to read chapter 41, verse 1. We'll get to it in just a moment, but just read it. Chapter 41, verse 1. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. How long does Joseph have to sit in that prison cell after he's been forgotten by the cupbearer? Two whole He's got two whole years to sit there and think about it. All that's happened to him. I've been betrayed by my brothers. I've been betrayed by Potiphar's wife. And now I've been forgotten by this stinking cupbearer. And I have to wait two whole years in this fiery trial. So let's ask the question for us. Because I don't know the last time you were betrayed by a cupbearer in prison. Anybody? Anybody? Bueller? Bueller? No, okay. So, how will we respond when we are in the crucible of suffering? How will we respond to God's shaping and molding of us during trials? So, let's ask the question. It's not if you go through a trial, but when you go through a trial. What should you do? So, let me suggest tonight three ways we should respond when... Going through suffering. And because I'm a good Baptist pastor, they all start with S. So we're going to do some little alliteration tonight just to help you remember. So here's the first one. Submit to God's sovereign plan. Submit yourself to God's sovereign plan. I've said it many times before. You can't fight God's sovereignty. If God has ordained you to go through it, you submit to it. You resign yourself and say, God, you're ordaining this to happen and I can't fight it so I'm going to submit to it. And you have to understand that if God is ordaining you to go through it, he's doing it for your good and for his glory. It may not feel good, it may be painful, but God is always doing good to his children and shaping and molding them and conforming us to the image of Christ. And God is sovereign in how he does that. We can't tell him how to do that. He sovereignly is in charge. All we must do is submit to God's sovereign plan. Doesn't mean you have to like it. Doesn't mean you have to understand it, but submit to it. That's first. Second, stand on the truth that God never forgets his children. The cupbearer may have forgotten Joseph, but God never forgets his children. God doesn't leave us at Mervins. <laughs> when we run off and start trying on sunglasses, he comes and knows where we are, seeks us out. He's never going to leave us or forsake us. Now, sometimes it may feel like God's forgotten us. May, sometimes it may feel like he's not our sovereign father. Or he, sometimes we, we wouldn't admit this, but God, do you really know what you're doing? No. He never forgets us. On four occasions, what does Moses, the writer of Genesis, tell us in chapter 39 about Mo, Joseph? God was with Joseph. Through your trials, stand on the promise that God is with you. He's not forgotten you. He doesn't leave you. He doesn't abandon you. He is with you. And then third, so one, submit to God's sovereignty. Two, stand on the truth that God never forgets his children. Number three, surrender to the gospel. Now, I want you to think about the imagery here. This may not jump out at you right away, but I want you to think about a picture of the gospel here. The cupbearer was in prison, and who was the source of his salvation? Ultimately, God, but through whom? Joseph. Joseph is not Jesus, but it is a picture of how Joseph gave hope to one who was in prison and announced his release now think about us spiritually how does the bible describe us before our salvation we were spiritually dead we were imprisoned to sin into our guilt and shame and we were rightfully there because we deserved God's wrath and Jesus came and died on the cross for us he announced hope he saved us by his blood and he's lifted us out He's released us out of prison and restored us into a right relationship with our Father. But are there times when we can be like the cupbearer and forget God's grace? I'm not saying you consciously do that, but how often do we take our salvation for granted? How often? You would never say, I forgot Jesus. I think it's funny. A couple months ago, we were going through a men's study, and it was in 2 Timothy. And I think it's 2 Timothy chapter 2. Let me make sure I got the right address. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 6, I think. Let me make sure that's where it is. I just found it very interesting what Paul tells Timothy. So l- let me read it to you. You don't necessarily have to turn there, but I'm going to make sure I have the right... No, verse 8. 2 Timothy 2, verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Timothy, remember Jesus. That's kind of a weird thing to say. Remember Jesus. Well, I don't think I've forgotten him. Why in the world would Paul tell Timothy, remember Jesus? I've told you this before. Nobody's ever taken me up on it. Go do a word search of how many times the word remember shows up in the Bible. Old and New Testament. I'm not sure how many there is, but there's a lot. Why does God tell us over and over again to remember? Because we are prone to forget. So let's not be like the cupbearer and take our salvation for granted, but let us remember Jesus. Let us rejoice in the gospel. Let us never get over the fact that he has released us. He's been our source of salvation. He's lifted us out of prison. He's made us new creations in Christ. We should be joyful and grateful every day because we've been released from this prison of sin and shame. So we submit to God's sovereign plan. We stand on the truth that God never forgets his children, and we surrender to the gospel. That is chapter 40. And Joseph has to wait two whole years before things begin to change. So let's now move into chapter 41, unless there are any questions before we advance. Are there any questions from chapter 40? You have an answer for me. If If you count what? The variance. Okay. So three to 500 times the word shows up. She said she did a Google search. All right. We'll trust Google on that. All right. So here's chapter 41. So chapter 39 is God takes us through times of loneliness and frustration and trials to test our faith to grow us to be more like Jesus. So we're still under that same kind of theme, but here's The the main theme or the main idea of chapter 41. Trusting in God's unshakable sovereignty prepares us to live distinctly godly lives in a godless culture. Okay, so let's just ask the question. Do we live in a godless culture? Yes. Do we as Christians need to live distinctly godly lives? How do we do that? We trust in God's unshakable sovereignty. Now, why do I say unshakable? We'll talk about that in just a moment. So this chapter is divided into four scenes, four sections. So let's look at the first. First of all, let's explore Pharaoh's dreams and dilemma. So this is, these two chapters are all about dreams. And Pharaoh has a dream, the cupbearer has a dream, the baker has a dream. And who's the interpreter of dreams? Joseph. Remember what he said in the last chapter? Is not God the one who gives the answer? So let's read in chapter 41, verses 1 through 8. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. Behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians in Egypt and all its wise men, Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Now, without you having any type of magic, let's just practically ask, c- could you probably figure out what these dreams mean? Sort of. Okay, what's the first image? Cows. The second image is wheat. Okay. We are in agricultural land out here. Farming and ranching. What are the images of cows and wheat? What are we talking about? The food supply, the food source of Egypt is going to be affected somehow. So there's a strange, so there's the number seven, and it's the same thing in both of the dreams. You've got seven plump cows that come up and they're nice and attractive, and then seven like real sickly cows come up and eat them. That's kind of a dangerous, weird dream. Cow, number one. Cows are herbivores, they don't eat other cows, and so these thin, sickly cows eating the good cows, like Pharaoh wakes up like, whoa, this is freaking me out. And then you've got this nice big bushel of, of wheat, and then this thin, blighted wheat comes and, and basically overtakes it, seven and seven. So, even if you couldn't get the exact interpretation, you knew somehow it's going to be bad <laughs> related to the food supply. So Pharaoh's troubled, he's agitated, he doesn't know what these are. So what does he do? Remember I said dreams are a big deal in ancient Egypt. He sends for the professional dream interpreters, the magicians to come. And they were knowledgeable. They were probably men who were involved in the occult, maybe magic arts. They had somewhat supernatural ability. But here's the thing. Notice what the text says in verse 8. Very end of it. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Now, let's ask a theological question or just a basic question. Is it no one could or no one would? (laughs) We really don't know. It's not that hard to figure out what the dream is. I think, this is my personal opinion, I could be wrong on this. I think these men were cowards. They didn't want to tell the king the truth. They were yes men. They wanted to give the king good news, and they knew that these dreams weren't good news. They knew that it would not be a good report. So whether they could not or would not, we really don't know. The point is is that nobody's willing to give an interpretation here. And the king's distress, Pharaoh's distress, he's got two dreams, and... They're both about seven and seven and about food source, cows and wheat. Okay, so what do you think is going to happen even if you haven't read ahead? Finally, after two whole years, Joseph gets released from prison. So let's read. This is a fairly long section, but let's read verses 9 through 24. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, Ah! I remember my offense today. When Pharaoh was angry with the servant and put me in the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I each having a dream with its own interpretation. And a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged. Okay, let's just stop right there. Oh, yeah. After two whole years. I remember that little, I remember that guy. He was a Hebrew guy. I think his name was Joseph. And, oh, yeah, two years ago we had this. Go get him. Oh, yeah. Joseph's waiting how long for him to remember him? Two whole years. Okay, let's keep reading. Verse 14. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there's no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, behold, in my dream I was standing on the bank of the Nile, Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other go- cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke. I saw also my dream: seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears, withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears, and I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Okay, this is the moment of truth. Joseph is released, at least temporarily. Now, why is he shaven before he goes into Pharaoh? How long has that dude been in prison? He probably stinks to high heaven. If he's going to come before Pharaoh, he's got to get cleaned up. So he gets shaven. He's given a bath. And we'll see here in just a moment. What did I say is the main indicator in the Joseph story? Clothing. Clothing. But what's verse 16? It's very telling. It's one of the most telling verses in this entire chapter. One of them. There's another one. What does verse 16 say? It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh favorable answer I want you to think back to when he was a 17 year old and he had dreams remember the dreams he had as a 17 year old only 13 years of suffering and walking with the Lord in the crucible of tribulation could produce this type of answer in humility this is not the 17 year old kid who bragged about his dreams to his brothers about them all coming and bowing down to him. This is a man who has walked with the Lord, he's been through suffering, and he basically says, listen, in all humility, I don't have much to offer you, but if it's going to happen, God's going to do it. I'm just his servant. Now think about what Joseph could have done if he had been a bitter man. If Joseph had not learned anything or had not walked with the Lord, what, what do you think Joseph could have said? Now the text doesn't say this, but what could have Joseph said? He could have said, king... I'll interpret the dream, but there's a cost to you. First, I was wrongly treated by Potiphar's wife, and I want justice. Go do something about that. Also, I've been in jail two years longer than I was supposed to be because that cupbearer forgot about me. I want him dealt with. I want him punished. And also, I'm not going to answer your dream for free. You've got to give me something. I'll answer it, but, I, but you better pay me or something or, or release me. Get me out of here. I'm making demands upon you, Pharaoh, because I've been wrongly treated. Is that what Joseph says? Basically, let me just paraphrase. He comes out and says, listen, I'm a humble man. I don't have much to offer, but it's not in me. God will give you the answer. I'm sovereignly trusting in God to do this. And so in verses 17 through 24, Pharaoh recaps the dream. And you may ask, well, why does he repeat it? Let me just give you, this is a side note. So when I teach my Old Testament class at Colorado Christian University, we kind of cover over this when we talk about Hebrew narrative. Why is so much repetition, especially in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, why is there so much repetition? Because before this was written down in Scripture, it was told orally. It was transferred from person to person orally. And that's why there's repetition, so you can remember. When you, That's why there's so much repetition. Now, when it became Scripture, it was repeated again, because that's the way the Holy Spirit wanted it in, in the final form. But there's a lot of repetition in Hebrew narrative just because it, it's an, it was originally orally communicated, uh, like as opposed to being written down. All right, so let's go to the third scene here. And this is Joseph's plan and interpretation of the dream and and, and basically his elevation to be prime minister of Egypt. So let's read verses 25 through 45. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he's about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now therefore let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man, and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint officers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that will occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. Let's just stop there for now. So, as we go through this section, I want you to see God's sovereignty that comes out of the mouth of Joseph. Again, only walking through suffering and trusting in the sovereignty of God is he the mature man to say these things. Now, the key verse in this entire chapter is in verse 32. The doubling of Pharaoh's dreams mean that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. Joseph says that this famine is fixed by God. Literally, firmly decided. In other words, God has sovereignly decreed this to happen and nothing will stop God from accomplishing his purposes. It's, it's a done deal. It's God's decree. One thing you can account on is God will always accomplish his purposes. So, so let's ask the question here. How do we get prepared to live godly lives in a godless culture? We trust in God's unshakable sovereignty. In other words, we trust that God has, quote, unquote, fixed things, ordained things, set up things according to his sovereign decree. Now you ask, well, where do you get that, Pastor Sean? I could give you tons of verses, but let's just go through a few tonight. Psalm 135, 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. Whatever God wants to do, he's going to do. Where's he going to do it? In heaven and on earth. God has sovereign control over the entire universe. He's going to do what he wants to do. Okay, here's a rhetorical question in Isaiah 14, 27. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? Because the rhetorical question, if God's done something, who's going to stop it? Answer, nobody. If God has ordained it, if God has purposed it, nobody can... What does it mean to annul it? Stop it. Change it. Impede it. You can't do that. Now, this is the verse, if you want, like, the verse on God's sovereignty, here it is. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. Let's talk about this verse. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Now, let's talk about that verse for a moment. God declares the end from the beginning. It doesn't say God predicts. God declares it. And what God declares, what God says, comes to pass. So God is not passively sitting back and looking at time and kind of on the fly figuring out what's going on. God has sovereignly determined the end from the beginning, things that have not yet happened, and he, His counsel shall stand. It can't be changed. He is going to accomplish, does it say some of my purpose or what? All my purpose. God is going to accomplish it. This is God speaking. Then you've got Daniel 4.35 Which says, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? What does it mean to stay God's hand? You can't stop what God's sovereignly going to do. And then Job 42.2, I know that you can do all things and no plan of yours can be thwarted or stopped. So here's some sanity in a crazy world. The only way you can be prepared for suffering, for the craziness, for all the stuff that happens in our culture is to trust in the absolute sovereignty of God. Because God is ordaining it to happen and he is in charge and he is the one who's in control and we also know who wins in the end. God wins in the end. So Joseph has a strong theology in the sovereignty of God. He says this thing's fixed. Pharaoh, no matter what you do, you can't stop what God's plan is. There's going to be seven years of harvest, of plenty. There's going to be seven years of famine, and God's going to do it. No matter how hard you try to fight it, if you wish it away, if you don't like it, it is fixed. Now, what does Joseph do He lays forth a plan. And what is this plan? It's it's very easy what he does. First of all, what does he say? It it consists of three parts. First of all, he says, appoint a second in charge. He doesn't say appoint me. He says, Pharaoh, let me give you some advice. Make somebody second in command. Make somebody a prime minister that can be in charge of this whole thing. Number two... To spread around the organizational structure, appoint local governors who can take care of smaller populations so that we can have local control. And then third, install a rationing policy. Take one-fifth of the crops during the seven years and store them away so that you'll have stuff for the famine. So we can live off of four-fifths. We can live off four-fifths of the produce and the cattle during the good years, but let's leave back one-fifth, and let's put it in storage. Now, nowhere does Joseph say, hey, pick me, pick me. I'll be good at this. He says, no, pick someone to do this. Now, we've just seen, out of the mouth of Joseph, say God has sovereignly fixed this and he has a sovereign decree and so let me just say this God's unshakable sovereignty is true absolutely but that's not used in the Bible as an excuse for laziness or inactivity that would be like hyper-Calvinism if God's got it all figured out then why should I pray God's got it all figured out why should I evangelize? If God's got it all figured out, why should I serve? Why should I give my money? If God's got it all figured out, I should just sit back and let God do it all. Is that what the Bible teaches? Okay, has God got it all figured out? Yes. Is God going to accomplish his ends? Yes. Are we a part of that plan through our activity and our work and our service? Yes. Yes. Joseph, as we will see, has the highest view of the sovereignty of God, but yet he takes action, and he suggests a plan that is basically one that is not fatalistic, that says, well, if, if this, is, this famine's going to happen, we, you know, there's not much we can do. He says, no, let, let's come up with a plan. Appoint a prime minister, appoint local governors, and let's ration one-fifth. And most importantly, notice that Joseph... whoops. I skipped that blank, or that one. Whoops, I must have hit something wrong, Trina. I'll just keep going. You can fix the screen. Notice how he doesn't elevate himself as the one to do it. Instead, he simply makes the suggestion. Remember, nowhere do we see Joseph demanding Pharaoh to get him out of prison or climbing to the top of the ladder or make a name for himself. He doesn't make the demands. He doesn't say, Pharaoh, hey, make me in charge. I'd be a good candidate. He just says, no, this is what needs to happen. God's going to do this. God has fixed it. God's going to act, and I'm going to give credit to God. Now, it's very interesting. Who is Joseph talking to? Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the land. You can be bold and strong in front of political leaders and yet at the same time be gracious and humble. He unashamedly, before the most powerful man in the world, talks about the sovereignty of God. So in our godless culture, How do we display distinct godliness? We talk about God even when it's unpopular. He's talking to Pharaoh here, and the whole time he's giving credit to God. God's doing this. God gave me the dream. God's fixed this. You elevate the majesty and sovereignty of God. You're not ashamed of the gospel. Now, when you talk about God in the generic, that's safe ground. But when you start talking about Jesus and the cross and sin, and repentance, and hell, and wrath. That's where our culture says, now wait a minute, you've gone too far. You're becoming unloving, you're becoming intolerant, you are becoming um, a bigot, tone it down, don't talk so much about Jesus. So we need to be prepared to talk more about Jesus in the coming days, even when our culture will hate it, or call us bigoted, narrow-minded, too exclusive, or dare I say it, even call us unloving. Now comes the moment of truth, and everything is about to change for Joseph. He's going to be elevated as the prime minister, and watch how it happens. It all comes back to clothes, the coat of many colors. Potiphar's wife grabbed his cloak. Let's see it unfold. So let's continue reading. Let's pick up in verse 37. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this, and whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house. And all my people shall order themselves as your command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name zaphnath paneah and he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. So what happens to him when he becomes prime minister? He's put in new clothes. He's got new garments. Got a chain around his neck. He gets his own chariot. And he has gone from being a stinky, forgotten man in prison for 12 years to being now what? The second most powerful man in the world. But with this elevation comes something very unnerving if you read the story. You've got to read it very carefully. You start to root for Joseph. You think, all right, finally, Joseph. you finally got it. You've finally been vindicated. Things are looking up for you, Joseph. Things are going great. But then you notice what happens, especially in verse 45. I say it this way. Joseph becomes thoroughly Egyptianized. By Pharaoh. What does Pharaoh do? Look at verse 45. Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphonath Paneah, and he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. What does Pharaoh do? Pharaoh changes his name from a Hebrew name to a pagan Egyptian name, and Joseph is given a pagan wife, Egyptian wife. Now, Joseph really can't protest this because he knows the king would probably not like that. So everything in Joseph's life has changed in a moment. His, probably, his head is probably shaved. We don't know that, but, when, but back then, the, if you've seen pictures or, or, or artifacts or archaeology, the, the leaders in, in, in Pharaoh's court had shaved heads. So he's got a shaved head. He looks like an Egyptian, He dresses like an Egyptian. He's got a name of an Egyptian. He's got a wife that's an Egyptian. And like the old Bengals song from the 80s, he walked like an Egyptian. He probably walked like an Egyptian. That's Sorry, that's a dad joke. He's been thoroughly Egyptianized. But here's the thing. You may look at Joseph and say, on the outside... Pharaoh has made him become an Egyptian. But on the inside, he's always going to be an Israelite. He's always going to be a Hebrew. He knows his true identity. He's still, who's his dad? Jacob. Who's his granddad? Isaac. Who's his great granddad? Abraham. So, we learn from this that you can be in the world and not of the world. Especially when Kind of for Joseph's case, it's being forced upon you. Jesus said this to his disciples in, or about his disciples in his high priestly prayer in John seventeen, fifteen through eighteen. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. You can't be taken out of the world. You got to live in this world but you don't have to adopt the customs of this world per se. You can still live out a distinctly Christian life, but you have to be in the world. All right, so let's keep reading. Joseph rescues and rules. Let's keep going and read verse forty-six 60, 50, through the end of the chapter. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt "'During the seven plentiful years the earth produced abundantly.'" Remember, it was fixed, so it's going to happen. "'And he gathered up all the food of these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. "'Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph.'" Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come. And Joseph had said, there was famine in all the lands, but in all the lands of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened up all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. All right. We see the heart of this man in how he names his children. Remember, he's been thoroughly Egyptianized. His name's been changed. He's been given a pagan wife. But he names his two sons Hebrew names. He doesn't give them Egyptian names. The first son is Manasseh. And the word Manasseh means he who makes me forget He who makes me forget. Joseph had spent 13 years in tribulation, betrayed by his family, betrayed by Potiphar, betrayed by the cupbearer, and all those hardships are behind him now. So he names his son Manasseh as a reminder that he did suffer hardships in Egypt at the sovereign hand of God, but now he's been elevated to prime minister, meaning God's made me forget all that. I went through that, and that was my past, and God used that, but now he's elevated me to prime minister. So that's what the word Manasseh means. The second son's name is Ephraim, which means to bear fruit. So if you think about it this way, Manasseh, his name focused on Joseph's past 13 years of suffering. Ephraim, the secondborn, focuses on the future, where the land would be fruitful. But the main thing that you need to catch here is that Pharaoh has changed Joseph's clothes, changed his name, given him an Egyptian wife, but notice what Joseph does not do. He doesn't give his sons Egyptian names. Instead, he gives them Hebrew names. Now, as a slave... He couldn't say no to Pharaoh when Pharaoh changed his name and elevated him. But now, as the top man next to Pharaoh, he has the freedom to name his children Hebrew names. Joseph is not an Egyptian. In his heart of hearts, he is a Hebrew. And although everyone around him is pagan, he knows his true identity is that of being a son of the covenant family, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So let's ask a question about you. When everyone around you is pagan or doing godless things or acting like the crazy culture, do you stand out as one distinctly Christian in your heart of hearts? Do you choose to be godly in a godless culture? Now, verse 53 through 57, we see that because it was fixed, the famine does come. And the plan works. And people start coming and buying the grain that was stored up. But I want you to notice the very last verse. It's very interesting. What does the last verse tell you? The whole earth came to buy grain from Joseph. Not just Egypt, but there must have been that entire area in Africa. And maybe even the Middle East, people are coming all over. And this is important because the famine has also hit the land of Canaan. Who still lives in the land of Canaan? Jacob and his other brothers. They're going to have to come to Egypt to get grain. And they're going to have to face the one who's in charge of giving the grain. We'll get to that next week. It's a preview. (laughs) But the entire earth is coming. So Joseph is now the one who rescues and rules. He saves the people from the famine by providing grain And he rules the people as prime minister. So think about that. He rules and he saves. He rules as the prime minister. And he saves by giving people grain. Now, this again is a picture of Jesus. Let me show you some parallels of how this is a picture of Jesus. Let's first of all think about Joseph as the one who rules. He's the one who rules. Jesus, just like Joseph, was betrayed. Jesus was left for dead. He was buried. He was forgotten by his disciples. And then three days later, he was elevated. Not from a prison, but literally raised from the dead. And now where is he? He's exalted in heaven with the highest place of authority. You can think about it this way. Joseph was exalted as prime minister. Jesus was exalted as king of kings and lord of lords. Look at verse 43. He made him ride in the second chariot, and they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set them over all the land of Egypt. When Joseph comes around, you bow the knee. When Jesus comes back, everyone will bow the knee. Philippians 2, 6-11. Though he was in the form of God... Did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that's above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. And under the earth, and every tongue confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's parallels between Joseph and Jesus. Joseph was left for dead, he was raised, and he became the ruler where everybody bowed the knee. Jesus was left for dead, betrayed, buried in a tomb, raised again on the third day, exalted in heaven. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. Everyone bows a knee to Jesus. He's the greater Joseph, if you will. So Jesus is the ruler. The king of kings, Joseph was the prime minister, but Joseph is also the source of rescue, salvation for the nations. So how do we secondly see a picture of Jesus as rescuer in the life of Joseph? So think about who Joseph was here because of his plan and his position. Joseph was the only source of bread to satisfy the people's hunger during famine. In a far more excellent way. Jesus himself is not just the source of bread, he himself is the bread of life. He's the only trustworthy source of spiritual nourishment who can rescue you from sin, forgive you, and give you eternal life. Jesus came into the world to be a source of salvation to those who were in a spiritual famine Remember, your life before salvation was you were spiritually dead, and Jesus came and gave you his life. What did Jesus say about himself in John six thirty five? Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So not only will every knee bow at Jesus as Lord, but those who are spiritually hungry and have spiritual famine will come to Jesus as the only source of salvation because he is the bread of life. So how do you live a godly life in a godless culture? You trust in God's unshakable sovereignty. And what is God's unshakable sovereignty? Well, God sent Jesus to die on the cross, to rise again three days later, and to be our source of eternal life and sustenance and to be our king. So Jesus is the only one who can rescue you, and he's the only one who has the right to rule you. So the question that you've got to ask is this. If he is the true source of salvation and he is the rightful ruler, will you bow your knee to King Jesus? That's the only appropriate response to the Lord who is the bread of life, to bow the knee. Well, let's pray. And we got down a little bit earlier than last week, so you get a little bit more time to fellowship and and, and visit. Father, thank you for this time tonight. And we just want to submit ourselves to your sovereignty. Lord, we know that Joseph went through many, many trials. And Lord, we've gone through trials as well. And Lord, it's, it's painful as we go through them. But Lord, help us to trust that you never forget your children that you are always there with us, and always help us to remember the gospel, that Jesus, you died for us, you rose again, you're never going to leave or forsake us, you are our only source of spiritual sustenance, you are our king, we bow our knee to you gladly, joyfully, and so help us just to trust that you are sovereignly in charge of all things, and let that give us comfort, let that give us assurance, let that give us joy deep in our hearts, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.